Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Kara's Cure Show, where we explore the cutting edge of wellness. I'm Kara Sundland. It is normal to feel worried or anxious from time to time, but for some, anxiety certainly affects our behavior and our thoughts every day. So we're speaking with Lynn Lyons. She's a psychotherapist and the author of the book, The Anxiety Audit. She also has Anxious Nation, which is a documentary film that's being screened. And she talks about the seven sneaky ways anxiety takes hold and how we can escape them. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I want to start with that, the sneaky ways that they take hold and how we get rid of them. I, I think when we're anxious, we think we want to get rid of it. But let's start there. You say the minute we try to get rid of an anxious thought, we actually make it stronger. <laughs> yes, that's the paradoxical nature of anxiety. It's sort of like saying, if I said to you right now, don't think about a chocolate cupcake. Under no circumstances should you think about a chocolate cupcake. Oh, I see Boom, the cupcake right the now. Thought. Yeah, there it is. I see right. it. I right. taste it. Yeah, there, there it is. It is. <laughs> right. So, so what what we want to what we want to recognize is that this pushing away of it, of this saying, "I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't be feeling that way." Although that's instinctively what we want to do, it actually makes the problem worse because what happens is then people start worrying about the fact that they're worrying. They start stressing about the fact that they're stressing out. Um, a, a very good example of that actually is that people who struggle with sleep, people who really have insomnia, if you ask them, what do you worry about the most as you're going to sleep? Do you know what they say? Trying to go to sleep. Sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I've, yeah. On the nights where I've had insomnia, that's the worst thing because you start worrying yeah. about not being able to sleep and that makes it even harder to sleep. Right. You start doing that math of adding up. Gosh, what if I now if I fall asleep now and what if I can't fall asleep and I won't be able to function tomorrow? So it's this whole cycle of I'm worrying about this thing. So we, we take two approaches to it. One is that, all right, I am going to do as much planning and creating certainty. I'm going to make sure that all of my ducks in a, are in a row so that I know exactly what's going to happen. Or I'm just going to get rid of the stressor altogether, whatever it is. Yeah. And we really want to do the opposite of those two things. Which is what? So this is what's hard, right? So let's say this we're is struggling what's hard. with anxiety. And then you start worrying, okay, now I'm thinking a negative thought, or how do I not think? So what do we do yeah. to interrupt the pattern and get back mm -hmm. to feeling peaceful? So the first thing you do is you, for one, we really just want to recognize that this is a part of our brains. So you have a prefrontal cortex. I have a prefrontal cortex. This is where we imagine things. So if you have a dog or a cat at home, they're not sitting around sort of pondering their future. They're not, they're not worrying about, you know, God, the other day, did I bark too loud and sort of offend somebody? Like, should I, should I have not been so enthusiastic when they came home? They, we do that though. So what's different between us and other animals is that we can go forward in time and worry, and we can go backwards in time and ruminate, it's called. Yeah. We don't really live in the present very often like most animals do. So what we first want to do is recognize this pattern of worry. And I like to, I like to pull it out and give it a name. So you, know, so you can call it Sylvia, you can call it Joanne, you can call it Pete, and really begin to recognize that you're doing this thing called worrying and it's not problem solving. That's the key. Mm -hmm. So you're doing it. So, so say, and if you're a worrier, 
Mm-hmm. Um, say, you know, maybe a family member says, you know, oh, for God's sakes, mom, you don't have to worry about that so much or stop talking about that or we don't have to keep going over this. You have to listen to that feedback you're getting because when people tell you or when you recognize for yourself that you're going over things and over things and over things, that's the pattern called repetitive negative thinking. And so so once you recognize the pattern and then it's it's a little bit, you have to trust me here, right? It's a little bit of a leap of faith is that that repetitive negative thinking does not result generally in you taking positive action. Right. So we think so, by thinking it and talking about it and warning our kids or our family or whatever mm-hmm, we're doing, mm-hmm. we're being proactive, we're being responsible, but really right. we're ruminating and that's not helpful. Right. And what you're also doing is, you know, you bring up a good thing is that if you are if you are a catastrophic parent, for example, if you are a parent that is constantly warning your kids and talking to your kids about things in this way, you are teaching them how to be anxious. Mm-hmm. So that's called catastrophic parenting. And what what it means is that you are saying to your kids, the world is a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous place, and we have to make sure that we are hypervigilant, that we are on top of things all the time. Mm-hmm. What that doesn't I might be do guilty of that. Is, <laughs> well, you are in fine company, so don't feel bad about yourself. Um, <laughs> what what that does, though, is it it gets it gets in the way of you and your kids being able to do a, a skill. Because I'm all about teaching skills a skill called assessing reasonable risk. Because we we want kids to know that there are some things that are risky. Yeah. There are some things that are not risky. There are a lot of things in between depending on the circumstances. And we want to give ourselves and our kids the opportunity to step into the world and to figure out this is a good idea and this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But if your worry is constantly telling you and you're constantly telling your kids that everything is a bad idea, they don't develop that skill. Right, right. And then they shut down and then they they remove themselves from things and you have kids that won't go to school or um you know adults that say, "Oh gosh, you know, I w- I would never go on an airplane or oh, I would never I would never leave the state or I would never let my child go to a concert." And you come up with these really strict, rigid rules based on anxiety's desire to make sure that nothing bad ever happens. Yeah. And that's how it takes control. And some of us maybe like, for instance, I have a son who's a skier. I'm so okay with him pushing his boundaries at skiing. I don't, I don't worry about things like that. Or I love my kids to go in the ocean where my husband's very anxious about the ocean because he saw Jaws at a wrong age. <laughs> so, so, but the point is to recognize when we're having this catastrophic thinking, but it's yes. also a defense mechanism, right? Our anxiousness, um, you mentioned hypervigilance for those of us who grew up maybe with either financial insecurity or some sort of trauma or even on the other spectrum abuse or whatever many of these are adaptive things like we've we built this to be safe right yeah that's right and our brains have this system in order to keep us alive so the system that keeps us alive gets hijacked by our imagination mm-hmm. so if I were sitting here and um, all of a sudden a, a bear busted through my waiting room into my office, 
I have a system in place that would activate me, get my body activated, dilate my pupils, get adrenaline through my system that is designed to protect me. The problem is, is that what anxiety is really, is it's when that very important system gets hijacked so that you are experiencing an emergency that's not an emergency. Mm-hmm. So, for example, your kids decide that they're going to go swimming in the ocean and your husband worries about sharks, sharks because because like I, he went and saw Jaws at a very formidable age and it scared him to death. Right. And so he sits there and he imagines what he saw in Jaws. He imagines your kids getting eaten by a shark. He imagines horrible things happening and then his body gets activated as if it's happening. Uh So that system is there to protect us. If, for example, you did grow up in a traumatic or an abusive situation, you developed all sorts of oftentimes pretty amazing ways to get through it. Mm. Then when the trauma or the abuse is over, your brain has learned these survival mechanisms, these coping mechanisms, but now they're getting applied to situations where they're not necessary. Mm-hmm. So a, a really great definition of, th- there's a guy named David Barlow. He is a anxiety guru. He ran the Boston University uh, uh, Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. And I always steal this definition because I think it's so helpful. He defined anxiety as an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of your resources to deal with it. Mm. So when your son goes skiing, doesn't really freak you out because clearly you're thinking, well, you know that it's a risky activity. My husband was a ski racer. We know, right? So, so we know there's some risk, but you also think, you know what? My kid is pretty skilled at this. There's not no risk, but I'm not going to say it's an emergency that he can't handle. I'm going to say it's a risky activity that he's skilled at managing. Okay. Yeah. So I don't freak out and then maybe someone else would, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Somebody else would for sure. Somebody else would. And so when we're looking at what freaks us out, it's helpful sometimes to understand where that freak out came from. Anxiety runs in families because Mm -hmm. modeling of anxiety is one of the most powerful ways that it's passed down. So if you are terrified to fly and you look back and you think, yeah, well, my mom was always talking about plane crashes and always talking about how dangerous it was to fly. And so, so you learned that. That would be a story, a narrative that you would bring with you. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an overestimation of the problem. Flying is actually safer than driving and an underestimation of the resources to deal with it. Yeah. People will say to me, well, I don't like to fly because I'm a control freak and I can't fly the plane to which I say, I don't have the resources to fly a plane. So I'm going to, when I fly, I'm going to recognize it's a really safe mode of transportation and the people up front flying the plane are really equipped with the resources to get me up and down. Okay. But anxiety does this. So we always want to think, am I doing this? Am I talking about it in this way? And how can I do this? 
So how do we do that? How do we calm ourselves? What are, you know, you talk about the seven mm -hmm. sneaky ways anxiety takes hold and as how to escape them. So for everyone listening yeah. right now we've, who's experienced anxiety and three out of 10 Americans will have an anxiety disorder at some point in this life. What yeah. do we do um, when anxiety takes hold to escape it? Yeah, well, we, we, we want to escape the patterns yeah. that we do. So, so the, the patterns are the things that actually make it worse. The more, like I said, the more we try and get rid of it. You know, it's interesting, Kara, I very rarely use the word calm because I feel like that's a really high bar. If you're stepping into a situation that's, you know, that's, that's tricky for you, feeling calm may not be a, a reasonable goal, but feeling capable of tolerating the uncertainty and actually accepting that you're going to have certain sensations about that is a really helpful thing to say to yourself. Okay. So the two words that I can't do my job without are the two words, of course, right? So if you're going for a job interview, if I were going for a job interview and I wake up in the morning and my tummy feels weird and gosh, I'm driving to the job interview and my hands are a little shaky, I might say to myself, of course I feel this way because there's in, uh, some uncertainty in front of me. Mm -hmm. So, and, and what that does paradoxically is that that little part of your brain that's that's waiting to hear whether or not it's an emergency says, oh, well, Kara just said, of course she feels this way. So I guess it's not a life or death situation. So I'm not gonna get all activated. Now, what if you do get activated? What if you're trying to, what if you're working on on doing this, but you've spent a long time doing this? One of the things you have to do on purpose is to step into those situations and hang out so that your brain gets some new data. And then your brain, this primitive part of our brain begins to say, hey, wait a second. She's been telling me that job interviews and your brain says, I don't even know what a job interview is, but she's been telling me that job interviews are life threatening. And now here she is going into this job interview maybe I can develop a different response. Mm -hmm. So that's, well, that's like exposure therapy. We hear about exposure that's therapy. Ex that's uh, exposure therapy. But here's a little, here's a little boost to the, for, for people who want to, you know, do it yourself exposure therapy. The attitude that you have going in makes a huge difference. So if you were afraid of snakes and I said, Carol, we're going to do some exposure therapy. I'm going to come to Hartford, which, by the way, is my hometown, actually. It I is. grew up watching WFSB. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I grew up in reading that. That's yeah, awesome. I, so uh, if yeah. anyone's watching, Lynn, you can say hi if you have any relatives yeah, here. Hi, hi. <laughs> I was Lynn Gerwig back then, but I'm Lynn Lyons now. Okay. So anyway, so I decided I'm going to come down to Hartford and I'm going to say, we're going to do some exposure therapy. I'm going to hand you this snake, right? Uh. I hand you the snake and you're like, ah! right? I don't know that we've really accomplished very much. Right. But if I say to you, Carol, we're going to do some exposure therapy and what we're going to do on purpose is we're going to give your little primitive alarm system a different message. And we're even going to go so far as to say, I want to hold this snake. I am going to take this snake. I'm going to grab this snake and I'm going to act as if I love this snake. Now, that's hard to do. Like you said, this is the hard part. But once you begin to shift your attitude and once you begin to act as if, and truly sometimes it's something you do want, like maybe you were going to get a job as a snake trainer at Disney World. So you really, is there such a thing? You really had to learn how to handle a snake. 
Once you shift that attitude, and once we move into what we refer to as an offensive position instead of a defensive position, your brain learns a lot quicker. Okay. So exposure therapy is awesome, but what the mistake that people make, you know, you're going to get in an elevator and you're like, all right, I've got to get in this elevator. I hope I don't die in the elevator. Your little brain hears die, right? You want to say, I'm going to step into this elevator and I'm going to love it. I'm going to push all the buttons on the elevator. I'm going to sit here. Now, at first your brain is like, this is confusing. Why is she acting this way? But it starts to get the hang of it. Okay. So that's why we really have to do the opposite of what our worry and our anxiety demand. We don't want to completely get rid of worry. You know, you've got kids. I've got, I raised two boys. We don't want to be completely devoid of, of paying attention. Remember, we want to assess reasonable risk. But if there's something that you consistently worry about, it really makes an enormous difference if you can say to yourself, all right, I know this is the game that my brain is playing and I'm going to I'm going to give it some new data to work with. OK. And so, we don't have to be so afraid of it. Right. I mean, I love to think that we can reprogram ourselves because I think sometimes when we do get hijacked, we think, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. here it goes again. And and, we're, and, mm-hmm. and that's where that catastrophic thinking comes in. I want to shift right. our focus to teens um, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over my life, I've certainly incorporated a meditation practice. I've, I've learned mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I do this for a living, mm-hmm. interview smart minds like mm-hmm. you. So but then when you see your teens struggling, um, which so many teens have have been over the pandemic. I think it's gotten mm-hmm. a little bit better, but um, you see teens, let's say they're anxious beings anyway. They're worried about how they are being perceived. They're worried if their friends like them, they're worried this. Um, so is it different for a teen? How do we as parents help our teens when we realize that they're anxious? Yeah. Well, you're exactly right, is that being a teenager is an anxious time of life because remember, anxiety wants certainty and comfort. And Adolescence is really not known for its certainty nor its comfort. Mm. There's a lot of stuff going on outside in their worlds around them. A lot of change, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, difficult social situations to navigate. And the adolescent brain and body, there's a lot going on inside, too. So the, the first thing that parents need to know is that it really is okay for your teenagers to feel things in big ways. It really is okay for them to be, you know, really upset about something or if they get their heart broken to be really devastated about that. The thing we want to help our teens with is what do we do when we have those feelings? Mm -hmm. Who do we ask for help? How do we express them? What are the things we know make it feel better? What are the things we know make it feel worse? And, and one of the things that I talk about a lot, and I really have been uh, sort of on a roll with this recently, is that we have to be careful when we're talking to teens about their mental health, that we do not over pathologize what are normal adolescent stages to go through. Because what I'm seeing a lot of right now is we have we have really done sort of a good job educating kids about mental health and bringing it out into the open but what we but but what we've done not such a good job of is really helping them understand it's okay to have big feelings it's okay uh to mourn it's okay to feel furious at times not every feeling you have is a disorder 
Mm. Kids are really kids are really afraid right now. I mean, I've got a lot of kids I talk to that are anxious about becoming depressed. They're anxious about being anxious. They're anxious that they're going to become a drug addict. So we really have to normalize it for them and teach them the basics, which I'm happy to go through, the basics of emotional management. Okay, so let's start there. Um, we've got the, right. I know we might have been able to get through all of it, but let's say you've got these seven sneaky ways. So um, yes. you've got these, I assume, about seven solutions, whether or not we get all of them. But what are some ways to manage? I've heard one of it, name it to tame it. That's something I try to use yep. in my house. Let's name the feeling. Yep. And I fail at this yep. a lot, but also we shouldn't be trying to tell them, calm down and probably mm-hmm. try not to deal with anything when they're in that mode. <laughs> Correct. There's really not a lot of learning. So people will say to me all the time, what do I do when she's freaking out? And I say, well, just sit there and say, you know, this is hard, right? We, so so when, we're, when you're trying to teach somebody who's freaking out, it doesn't really go so well. Yep. So you're right. We're going to externalize it. We're going to recognize it. The other thing we really want to pay attention to, particularly for teenagers, is external connection. Because one of the things that anxiety does is it absolutely brings you inside. So there's a chapter in the book about inner isolation. Both anxiety and depression are referred to as internalizing disorders, which means that there's stuff out here that makes us feel anxious, of course, and that depresses us, of course. But the way it really becomes a disorder is what we do inside. So research is very clear that when people are externally connected, When teenagers, for example, are doing volunteer work, when they are doing something that that feels meaningful to them during COVID, I was boy, I was beating this drum. Let's make sure that we're finding ways that we can help our neighbors, that we can help other people. When you are inside and anxiety and depression really want you to just not connect. When you are inside, you are creating narratives, you are creating stories there's a, a a saying in the depression world, which is applicable to anxiety as well, that you are not the best person to talk to you about you. So that's one of the things we want to pay attention to is how do we how do we increase and how do we teach our kids from an early age the importance of external connection? Mm. That's a key. yeah. And, you know, these devices that they have, unfortunately, can can help and adults too can help us with external connection. They're not all bad because you can be engaged with people, but it's also a way that you can really sit there and you can just watch what other people are doing. You start comparing yourself to others. And that's a very internal process. So we want to think external, external. Yeah. So So that's one of the keys. So mm-hmm. try to externalize, try to keep, you know, whether they be involved in the community, some screen free time, a mm-hmm. sport they love, finding yep. something that they love and then just being OK that they're freaking out. I think sometimes you're right. We all have these new vocabularies with new words. And then um, we yeah. have to be careful. You're right that we're not telling them a story that there's something wrong with you. You have a disorder or. Right. Uh, and, and they right. may. A lot of kids have started to go to therapy and have been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and maybe even me taking medication. And, and they're at the point of like, OK, I'm, I'm trying to say that that's a you know that's okay now that's okay we went through the pandemic um yeah here's the difference we want to say it's okay and we want to say because therapy really works therapy is a good idea yeah the research is really clear about that we want to say it's okay but we also want to say it's not permanent and it's not who you are not because that's when it really gets stuck Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. one of the things when, when I'm talking to young people, 
um, which I do all the time. I still have a practice. Here's my office. I still see people. And I'm also in front of people all the time. Um, I will say to young people, I want you to think about the things you do that make your mood or your stress better and the things that you do that make your mood or your stress worse. I want people to learn about their operating system because what we do has an impact. And there is nothing I say that pisses teenagers off more than what I just said. How dare you say that I have something to do with this? Well, you do. It's not about blaming you, but you have to learn about you and you have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Mm, mm. And that's the message that we want to give kids. That's why in, in therapy with me, it is a really active process because I want them just as if I were doing physical therapist therapy, if you broke your ankle, I'm going to give you exercises to strengthen your ankle. If you are in therapy trying to figure out how to break these patterns of ruminating or catastrophizing or inner isolation, I want you to learn the skills you need in order to strengthen the stuff that helps and not strengthen the stuff that doesn't. You know, and as we wind down here, because I know we're going to run out of time a little bit, and I want to encourage everyone that they can get the Anxiety Audit. Uh, it's a book available on Amazon, available everywhere you want to look for. Just uh, Google Anxiety uh, Audit, Lynn Lyons. Um, are boys and girls different? Um, girls, I know, tend to internalize. Boys externalize, I guess I've heard. But as far as helping this, uh, you know, I, sometimes it seems girls are way more open to going to therapy and talking about their feelings, and boys aren't and and yet they might be struggling it's harder to maybe mm -hmm. but maybe they're dealing with the same thing they are dealing with the same thing um and i think that i think just that the way that that unfortunately we socialize boys is that there's as, as much as we think we've come so far i think there still is a lot of language which bo with boys particularly amongst boys of you know be tough and suck it up and you know there's no crying in baseball we really don't teach boys as well how to articulate their emotions, how to be okay with what they're feeling. Um, there is a really sort of suck it up buttercup thing that happens with boys more than girls mm. for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I am encouraged uh, by the fact that I have so many young men in my practice, college students, high school students, that once they get in here, and I'm not all therapisty either, so I think that probably helps. Like I'm not like, tell me how you feel. I think um, I think they really they really benefit from being able to talk about what's going on and really actively be involved in bolstering their resources. Get strategies, um, right? Anxiety, Huh. It, say again? Get strategies rather than, you're, uh, the, yes. we got to think of therapy as like emotional coaching. And this is maybe a good Correct. place to start. If you have kids, maybe you don't have resources to go to a therapist or you have kids who are really resistant to going. I know that's a good mm -hmm. thing. There are a lot of good good books and, 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 stu and stuff out mm -hmm. there. This might be one place to start. But um, just even being aware of it and giving the kids the strategy um, can help because I guess anxiety is something that they're going to have to learn to deal with just like anything else. Correct, because life is uncertain. And it's very likely that as you move through the different chapters of your life that you're going to hit some bumps. Yeah. I have a podcast, too, called Fluster Clucks with an X. Um, and we started that. I do that with my sister-in-law, who's married to my brother. We drop episodes every Friday. We started it right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we cover 
every worry topic that you can possibly imagine. So that's a good resource too. I really, I really try hard to put a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your time. And we love that you're originally from Connecticut. Uh, but thank you for being here and exploring the cutting edge of wellness with us. I am delighted to be here, Kara. Thank you for having me. And you can find more information. Again, Lynn's book is uh, The Anxiety Audit. You can find it there. You can also follow me on social media at Kara Sundlin. I like to share this content there. So have a great day, everyone, and be well.